Welcome to the Truth About False Confessions podcast. I'm Alan Hirsch, Chair of the Justice and Law Studies Program at Williams College and an expert on false confessions. To learn more, visit my website, truthaboutfalseconfessions.com. Now on to today's episode. In March 2017, an attorney from Memphis, Tennessee, called to express interest in retaining me for his homicide case. From our chat, I could tell that Mike working would be fun to work with. More importantly, it seemed that his client, a young man who had already been imprisoned for four years and would remain behind bars for life if convicted, might well be innocent. The entire case against him consisted of a dubious confession. Memphis, a city rich in lore, is almost rich in false confessions lore. West Memphis witnessed a notorious case, the West Memphis Three, the subject of a terrific HBO documentary trilogy. West Memphis happens to be in Arkansas, across the Mississippi from its Tennessee counterpart, but some of the same shaky police practices that led to the tragedy in West Memphis can also be found in its sibling city to the east. My Memphis case involved an apparent gang-related shootout at an apartment complex, with bullets whizzing around, leaving one person dead and another seriously wounded. None of the several eyewitnesses knew the shooters, and extensive investigations yielded no suspects. Six months later, an anonymous tipster suggested that Tori Anderson, an 18-year-old African-American man, may have been involved. Police visited the surviving victim, who allegedly picked Anderson out of a photo lineup. They brought Anderson in for an interrogation, which, in keeping with practice in Memphis, was not recorded. After several hours of maintaining that he knew nothing about the shooting, Anderson declared his willingness to confess, and the subsequent portion of the questioning was transcribed. Anderson claimed that he and three acquaintances had gone to the apartment complex to recover an unpaid debt from a card game and during the ensuing shootout, his accomplices fired the fatal and wounding shots, whereas for some reason Anderson himself shot off to the side. As it turned out, the surviving victim's identification of Anderson in a photo array helped the defense rather than the prosecution. The victim told the defense investigator, and later repeated under oath in court, that he did not recognize Anderson, and had told the police otherwise only because they pressured him to do so. None of the other eyewitnesses to the shootout corroborated the apparently coerced identification of Anderson. Meanwhile, Anderson's confession was riddled with problems. He said the gun he used was a 380, but a defense expert claimed that the shell casings recovered at the crime scene could not have come from a 380. For that matter, it seemed improbable that the defendant, a destitute and unemployed teenager, would have used this expensive firearm. In various other respects, too, such as the location of the various shooters and the directions of the shots, details in Anderson's confession contradicted the forensic evidence as well as the testimony of the eyewitnesses. The defense planned to elicit my testimony about the surprising frequency of false confessions and the interrogation methods known to cause them. I could not say much about the interrogation tactics used in this case, 
because the interrogation was unrecorded and the police reports devoted just two sentences to it. That said, I found one of those sentences noteworthy. The defendant maintained his innocence, but at a certain point was presented with evidence and admitted guilt. That brief description dovetailed with a key aspect of the Reed method, the widespread interrogation method that contributes to false confessions. Reed involves confronting the suspect with evidence that allegedly proves his guilt. In this case, such evidence was almost certainly false because the police had no actual evidence implicating Anderson other than a coerced and later retracted identification. It was also noteworthy that Anderson's confession involved him playing a secondary role in the crime, since a common interrogation tactic involves suggesting to the suspect that admitting to a secondary role will get him off easy. Of course, it was possible that the defendant minimized his involvement on his own initiative, or maybe he had played a secondary role. Maybe the officers didn't pressure him at all. We could not know because law enforcement failed to record the interrogation. More and more jurisdictions now record interrogations, as I would explain to the jury if permitted. But would the judge allow me to testify? As usual, the prosecution sought to have my testimony excluded. Prosecutors do not want jurors to learn about interrogation tactics and false confessions. They are usually granted a so-called Daubert hearing for the judge to determine whether the proposed testimony would assist a jury. In the Tory Anderson case, as is typical, the Daubert hearing consisted of my testimony under friendly questioning by defense counsel and hostile questioning by the prosecutor, followed by the attorney's oral arguments. Those oral arguments always sound the same. The defense attorney emphasizes the numerous cases in which judges approved expert testimony on false confessions and insists that the jury would benefit from education about this counterintuitive phenomenon. The prosecutor emphasizes the few cases in which judges excluded such testimony and insists that the jury would be confused or overwhelmed if exposed to it. My testimony at these hearings also follows a predictable pattern, and this hearing in Memphis conformed to it. The prosecutor began by grilling me about my mortal sin of receiving payment for my work, as if her own experts don't, or for that matter, she herself or the judge or anyone else in the courtroom. Her questioning also established that I never worked for law enforcement. She further elicited that I have no idea exactly how many confessions are true and false. In other words, she raised all the questions I'm accustomed to and prepared for. In my admittedly biased opinion, she scored few points. However, at the conclusion of the hearing, the judge raised a new issue, something unique in my experience, and I have been subject to dozens of these hearings. An important part of my testimony concerns interrogation tactics, but because the interrogation in this case was not recorded and the police report describing it was skimpy, we could not know what tactics had been used. Under the circumstances, Judge Paula Scahan said, she was not ready at this point to permit my testimony. If, during the government's presentation of its case, any of the officers acknowledged using the kinds of tactics I consider problematic, then my testimony would be permitted as rebuttal. This ruling was questionable. It ignored the fact that not all of my testimony would be about interrogation tactics. Why shouldn't jurors learn that there have been well over 1,000 proven false confessions? 
Why shouldn't they know that increasingly law enforcement videotapes interrogations and that Memphis holds out for no apparent reason? Why shouldn't the jury hear that true confessions, unlike false confessions, often generate new information? Also, the judge's ruling rewarded the government for presenting a confession without providing any idea of how it was produced. In addition, the judge's ruling, while keeping open the possibility of allowing my testimony, tipped the prosecutors off as to how to avoid that result, perversely encouraging them not to call to the witness stand the officers who conducted the interrogation. Despite the disappointing ruling, my trip to Memphis was well worthwhile. For one thing, I got to know attorney Mike Working. A former college football player, Mike looks the part. He also resembles both Newt Gingrich and Pete Rose and shares their pugnacity, but not their demons. Though approaching 50, Mike looked like he could still knock your head off with a good hit. He prefers a good story, especially about his adopted city, and he entertained me with tales about Memphis. After the hearing, Mike insisted I join him on the 80th floor of a downtown hotel for a breathtaking view of the sun setting over the Mississippi. Memphis offers much more than charming vistas. As the Civil Rights Museum and Blues Hall of Fame remind us, it was a major locus for the African-American experience. At the Civil Rights Museum, I took my place inside a replica of the bus Rosa Parks made famous when she refused to retreat to the back. I stood next to a statue of Parks near the front and felt goosebumps. But now, more than a half century since her heroic resistance, the city's ongoing struggle with race was exemplified by the case that brought me there, with Tori Anderson, another African-American victim of Memphis's justice system. The history and vestiges of racism in the city could be seen from the veranda of my hotel, which looked out on Confederate Park and a life-size statue of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. The trial commenced two weeks after the Daubert hearing. The prosecution called a dozen witnesses, saving a police officer for last. And to introduce the chance that the judge would allow my testimony, the prosecution called a cop who had barely been involved in the interrogation and lacked formal training in interrogations. They would have called no cops if they could, but the rules of evidence required them to call one in order to get the defendant's confession admitted into evidence. On cross-examination, Mike Working got the officer to acknowledge that when the police bring someone into the interrogation room and are convinced of his guilt, they aim to keep him there, no matter how long it takes, until he confesses. Something crucial and very unusual also came out during the officer's testimony. As I mentioned, police had transcribed the portion of the questioning where the defendant confessed. However, the copy of the transcript given to the defense was redacted, with some sensitive information, such as names and addresses, blacked out. When the prosecution now introduced the transcript into evidence, for the first time Mike Working saw a non-redacted version. He noticed something staggering. The defendant gave as his address the very apartment building where the murder took place. As he did not live there at the time of the murder, he had apparently moved in afterward. Mike would have a grand time with this in closing argument. I guess Tori Anderson thought to himself, I need a place to live. Hmm, there must be a room available at the place I murdered the dude. You may wonder why in the world Tori hadn't informed Mike that he moved into that apartment, insofar as it was potent evidence in their favor. 
In all likelihood, the uneducated defendant simply did not realize the significance of his choice of residence. This reinforced my view that Tori Anderson could easily be deceived into telling police officers whatever they desperately wanted to hear. The officer's testimony, however, was far from a complete victory for the defense. Because the officer claimed to know little about the interrogation of Anderson, the judge ruled my testimony inadmissible. Since the prosecution offered no evidence about the interrogation, there was nothing for me to rebut, or so the judge ruled. Hoping my trip to Memphis would not be a waste, I volunteered to assist Mike in drafting his closing argument scheduled for the next day. He welcomed the offer, but said it would be best if he and his assistant, a young attorney named Josie Holland, produced a first draft and ran it by me. Desirous of my having a good time in Memphis, Mike suggested I see the Grizzlies playoff game that night and that we get together after the game. By then, Josie and he would have a draft for us to work with. A few hours after the Grizzly upset the San Antonio Spurs, Mike, Josie, and I snacked at an outdoor cafe near famous Beale Street. For me, it was an extraordinary experience. You don't find an outdoor cafe open late at night in my corner of New England, not even during the summer, when it may or may not be warm enough. When I left my house for the airport early that morning, it was 50 degrees. Now, on the other side of midnight in Memphis, it pushed 80. I soaked in the warm air, not to mention the coffee and Bavarian pretzels, my little taste of a southern night. More importantly, I helped Mike and Josie tweak the closing argument that would represent their last chance to save Tori Anderson from a life behind bars for a crime we believed he did not commit. Before we got around to that, we revisited the defense's decision not to have the defendant testify. The two defense attorneys were divided. Mike adamantly opposed their client testifying, whereas Josie wanted him to. I cast my provisional vote with Josie. While acknowledging that my opinion was of limited value since I did not know Tori Anderson and had no clue what kind of witness he would make, I noted the general rule that a defendant who has confessed must testify in order to have a fighting chance. Because juries have trouble believing that an innocent person would confess, they need to hear that person provide a convincing explanation of the thought process that led him to. For better or worse, Mike, the lead attorney, outvoted Josie and me one to two. He insisted that the timid, uneducated Anderson would have been overwhelmed by the experienced, aggressive prosecutor. I responded, as I always do when lawyers express such concerns, that if the prosecutor tore Tory apart, Mike could turn that to his advantage in closing argument. You saw how the defendant responded under pressure from a bullying authority figure. Imagine what it was like in a small, windowless room when his attorney and family were nowhere in sight. Mike did not buy my pitch and Tory Anderson followed Mike's suggestion that he exercise his constitutional right to remain silent. In another respect, however, I did influence Mike. Because some aspects of the defendant's confession were indisputably false, the prosecution would be in the difficult position of acknowledging the falsity while maintaining that the jury could nevertheless be sure that the main part of the confession was true. Mike, conversely, would argue that when you know part of a statement is false, you cannot trust any of it. As he outlined the argument he planned to make along those lines, I cut in. The cockroach in the spaghetti, I said. Mike and Josie looked perplexed. I explained that the forensic defense expert, Henry Lee, had used the spaghetti cockroach line to great effect during the O.J. Simpson trial. 
When you find a cockroach in your plate of spaghetti, you don't just remove it and assume the rest of the spaghetti is fine. Rather, you throw out the whole dish. We could make that argument about Tori Anderson's confession. Mike liked the idea and pecked away at his computer. The next day, during his effective closing argument, Mike ran with the cockroach and spaghetti analogy. And for good measure, he added his own culinary metaphor. He told the jurors that the government had presented them with a lovely-looking cake, the defendant's confession, but refused to tell them how it had been baked, what ingredients and what pressure cooker oven had been used to prepare it. That cleverly emphasized the cop's failure to record the interrogation as well as the prosecution's failure to call the lead officer to the witness stand. The prosecution's closing argument took place in a parallel universe. They said little about the confession or, for that matter, any evidence of the defendant's guilt. Instead, they emphasized the brutality of the crime, the need for justice for the victims, and the fact that it makes no difference under the law whether the defendant personally shot the victim. By being part of the shootout, he was just as guilty as if he had fired the fatal shots. The prosecution essentially ignored the principal defense argument that the defendant was not present at the crime scene. I think I understand why the prosecution took that approach. They feared only one thing, that the jury would go easy on the defendant because he was not the principal culprit, finding him guilty of lesser charges rather than homicide. It did not occur to them that the jury would believe the defendant to be innocent. After all, he confessed. How could he be innocent? I feared that the prosecution's assumption might be accurate. Juries usually vote to convict defendants who confessed, even in weak cases. But shortly after the jury was sent out to deliberate the fate of Tori Anderson, we received a hopeful sign. Fourteen lay people had sat in the jury box and observed the trial, but only twelve would decide the case. Just before the jurors went out to deliberate, two of the fourteen were chosen at random and dismissed. The two women, who drew the unlucky straws, came over to us shortly after they were dismissed, eager to share their impressions of the case. Needless to say, we were eager to hear from them. They told us they would have voted not guilty without reservation. They doubted that Tori Anderson was present at the crime scene, in part because it would have been crazy for him to move into that apartment if he had been. They did not trust his confession, especially because the police had coerced one of the victims into falsely identifying the defendant. If officers applied unseemly pressure on an innocent victim, why believe they didn't do the same to someone they suspected of murder? They were, from a defense standpoint, dream jurors, except they weren't jurors at all thanks to their random dismissal, and that meant one of two things. The jury was going to acquit Tory Anderson, or he was the unluckiest man on the planet. With either of these women on the jury, he could not possibly have been convicted, since a verdict requires unanimity. Either some other jurors, hopefully all of them, felt the same way, or the dismissal of these two sealed Anderson's fate. I tried to do some calculating. What are the odds that in a 14-person pool, the only two who thought the defendant not guilty were randomly dismissed? My interest in statistics surpasses my ability, so I did not arrive at the answer, but I imagined it was at least one in a million. I suppose that should have eased my mind, but it didn't. I had seen enough unhappy and unjust endings as to remain pessimistic about the forthcoming verdict. The jury deliberated for five hours. I cannot describe my feeling when they were about to announce the verdict. 
It's impossible to convey the enormity of that moment when you were about to learn whether someone's life is irrevocably ruined or about to start anew. Not guilty of homicide. Not guilty of the lesser charges. Not guilty all around. Tori Anderson was a free man. Sobs of anguish and joy could be heard in the courtroom from the victims' and defendants' families. The attorneys displayed no reaction because the judge warned against shows of emotion. The defendant did not visibly react either, no doubt because he was numb. I too betrayed no emotion, but I felt elated and incredibly relieved. Somehow Mike Working managed to text me without openly taking out his phone. I felt mine vibrate in my pocket, but did not dare look at it until I had left the courtroom. It read, Cockroach in the Spaghetti. A little later, Mike, Josie, and I got to talk to the jurors, several of whom were in tears. They said those were tears of joy, and they felt certain they had done the right thing. One of them wanted to know whether Tori Anderson had any legal recourse for the four years he spent behind bars. Unfortunately, not in Tennessee. Most gratifying for me, they said they were outraged that the confession had not been recorded and that the prosecution had not called the lead interrogator to the witness stand. That, of course, was because the prosecution did not want to open the door to my rebuttal. Apparently, the threat of my testimony helped the defense, perhaps more than the testimony itself would have. In any event, I now had the opportunity to talk to the jurors about false confessions. I emphasize that jurors tend not to accept the phenomenon of false confessions and praise them for their exceptional work in recognizing that a confession cannot necessarily be trusted. There was an odd postscript to my experience in Memphis involving an unrelated trial in the same courthouse that took place simultaneously and attracted far more attention. It was a juicy case involving a local entrepreneur, a multimillionaire accused of rape. The defense attorney, an A-list Southern lawyer named Steve Faris, made national news with an unusual rift during closing argument. To a jury with 11 women, Faris explained that they should not believe the accuser because women are, quote, especially good at lying because they're the weaker sex, and we want to protect them and not have anybody take advantage of them. It was unclear how Faris expected the jury to protect women by acquitting a man accused of rape, but the jury did indeed acquit his client. I would like to think they did so despite, not because of, his antiquated sentiments. As closing arguments go, I much prefer the cockroach in the spaghetti and the confession caked bake in the pressure cooker oven. I have since stumbled on this quote from the writer Hampton Sides. The thing about Memphis is that it is pleasingly off kilter. It's a great big whack job of a city. You go there and you can't believe the things people will say the way they think, the wobbling orbits of their lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Truth About False Confessions podcast. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you used to listen.